The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. God's word today comes from Revelation chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word for today. Again, morning, Acts Church. So I typically pray before all of my sermons, but given that today we are talking about Revelation, And this is a deep book. This is a heavy book. There's a lot of misconceptions about this book. Uh, I ask you to also pray for me that I don't screw it up. So here we go. Heavenly Father, God, you are a good God. Uh, Lord, and we've been encountering your word through Genesis, through now today, Revelation. We just ask that you speak, Lord, that as we encounter you in your final message to the church, Lord, that we find comfort, that we find peace, uh, that we find you. Uh, Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So we've been in a series called How to Read Your Bible specifically looking at the different genres of Scripture from Old Testament narrative to Old Testament prophecy to the Gospels, the Epistles, wisdom literature, and looking how each of them is uniquely designed in their own literary genre to teach us about who God is and what God is doing. We actually put together a bookmark that has all the different genres of Scripture and some questions that you can be using to kind of help guide your reading as you try to figure out what God is speaking to you. This is the final week, and we're looking at Revelation. And as I said before the prayer, this is a difficult topic. Revelation is probably the most misunderstood and most abused book of the Bible when it comes to how the world looks at Scripture. Uh, If you want to have an idea of what that looks like, if you've seen any of these TV shows, movies, or video games, this is just a glimpse of media that will take a verse from Revelation and use it for something. Now, mind you, these are all my jams, right? I'm the guy who shows up at Lutherfest dressed as an elven king. I am fine with fantasy. I am fine with having fiction. But the problem is they will take a scripture from Revelation, which is very bloody, and they'll turn it into something else. They'll take it out of context. So an example of that would be Revelation 6, 8. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. I mean, this is a verse that you make a movie out of, right? This is something that you look at and you're like, yeah, 
That's intense. And so what we do is we take this imagery and we try to figure out a narrative around it that's separate from the narrative or the message that God originally wrote to his people. Because there are all kinds of misconceptions and myths around the book of Revelation. But the biggest one, if you guys take nothing else but this one statement, hear me clearly, the biggest myth is that Revelation is not a code to decipher the end times. God did not write the book of Revelation so Christians would know when he was going to come. And the reason why I am incredibly confident in that statement is because Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and Peter all explicitly say, no one knows when the end times is going to come. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. He says, but concerning that day, and he's talking about the end times, talking about the day of the Lord, and we'll talk about that in a second. He says, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, says this, Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul says, I'm not going to write to you about this. You don't need to have stuff written about the end times of when it's going to happen. Not necessarily how, but when. He goes, because it's going to come like a thief in the night. And then Peter, to finish it off, he says this in 2 Peter 3. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day, that to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, again, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done here will be exposed. Again, Peter writes to the early church, we don't know when the end times are going to begin. We don't know when the apocalypse, and that's the, word for, that's the Greek word for revelation, is going to happen. It's not about when. It's not about deciphering, God, what are you doing? What's the hidden meaning here? We have a God who doesn't work in hidden meetings. We have a God who works in very public, very open ways. Because as Peter says, he's trying to wait to call as many people to repentance and as many people into his family as possible. Right? And so this myth that Revelation is meant for us to decode what's happening here doesn't align with what Jesus says or what his first followers said. What we actually find is that Revelation is much more practical. It's much more deeply practical to a world that is broken and that is hurting. And right now, it's really apparent that our world is broken and is hurting, right? This past weekend, we had synagogues shot up. We had a guy trying to get into an African-American church, and when he couldn't get into the African-American church to shoot people, he went to the grocery store and shot people. We've got bombs being delivered through the mail. We live in times that are broken, that are hurt. And what we're going to find is that in Scripture, the early church was in a very similar time, and so God wrote the book of Revelation to give his people comfort, to give them hope. And that's what we're going to see today. So here's the truth. Revelation used an Old Testament genre called apocalyptic imagery. 
I'm going to read you the definition of that, but then I'm going to explain it. So apocalyptic imagery involves vivid metaphors and poetic language, which enable the writer to connect and hopefully the reader to understand the significance within God's reality of events that happen within our own earthly space, time, and matter. All right, that's a really big word, but essentially what that is saying is that God uses metaphor and poetic imagery to let us peek behind the veil of the world. And so we can connect the heavenly realm, what God is doing in his realm, with what's happening here on earth. And he uses metaphor, he uses numbers, and he uses symbolic imagery to help give us a peek of how our God moves, that he's still active and that he's still alive, even when things are rough, even when it feels like the sky is falling. We find is no, our God is still moving. And this happens in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. A really good example of this in the Old Testament comes from Isaiah 13. The kingdom of Babylon has come, and they're going to wreak havoc on Israel. Now, the kingdom of Babylon is a physical kingdom at this time. It's an empire that is just destroying everything. And God says, they're going to come, but don't worry. I am going to take care of them. And this is how he writes about taking care of the kingdom of Babylon. A prophecy against the kingdom of Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. See, the day of the Lord is coming, and this is going to be really important. The day of the Lord is a regular theme in Scripture. The day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. Then he writes, The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Now the kingdom of Babylon was destroyed. The physical kingdom was destroyed, but the stars didn't give, stop shining. The moon didn't stop shining. He used metaphor. He used imagery to talk through, hey, this is going to be a world-shaking event when the kingdom of Babylon falls. Right? And so he uses this metaphor to give us a peek behind what God is going to do in a physical way. And when we look at Revelation, that's the entire book. It's this metaphor, it's this imagery that is meant to give us hope and it's meant to give us hope in this concept of the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a theme that happens a lot through Scripture. We see it in the Exodus story, the day of the Lord. We see it when God goes to his people and actually sends Babylon and says, you know what? You've been sinning, and so I'm going to show up, but I'm going to show up in this physical kingdom that is going to hurt you. But then he says, I'm going to redeem you from that kingdom once you've learned your lesson. The day of the Lord is when Jesus comes, and then what we find in Revelation is that the day of the Lord is when God will have ultimate victory over sin and death. To kind of show you what this looks like, we're going to look at one last video from the Bible Project. The Bible Project is a free online resource that theologians have gotten together with artists to kind of help explain what God is doing in the Bible, and they've got a really good example of what the day of the Lord looks like throughout Scripture. So I invite you guys to watch this with me now. The Day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book. 
When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. And God knows how devastating this could be, a whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward and he's swallowed up by death. Now after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb that's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence. So God's people have become like Babylon, the oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape. And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This is the story Jesus was born into. Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome. So is Jesus gonna confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel, all humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. But he didn't. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him, using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. 
and something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human. Okay, so something changed. But the power of evil is still alive and well, and we keep building new versions of Babylon. Right, and so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world. Yeah, this is it, Armageddon, final judgment. How is Jesus gonna finish off evil? Well, that's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloody before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? That's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store. So the day of the Lord is the emphasis of Revelation. But as we've been reading through Scripture, we've been using these three questions to help guide and navigate how we engage with it. And in Revelation, if in no other book of the Bible, this is imperative. Because where we get off track as a church is we want to make Revelation all about our experience. We want to be the center of the story. We want it to happen when it happens to us. And so we put ourselves at the center of God's story, and we've been talking about how whenever we do that, that's a really good place to start sinning, because right? that's what sin does. It turns it back into ourselves. Right? And in Revelation, it's really easy to do that. So what we're going to be doing is looking at how does God protect and provide for his people in Revelation? What are the consequences of mankind's sin and rebellion? And then this is the important one. What does God ask of his people? Because he's going to be asking his people a very specific request in Revelation that is going to then die directly into what is God asking of us. Now, as a super brief overview of what's happening in Revelation, this is how it goes. I'm going to touch on this just a little bit, but this week we're going to send out with the How to Read Your Bible uh, lesson plan. There's actually going to be two videos that will go into much better detail from the Bible Project. But big-time overview. Starts off with an introduction saying who wrote the book. Then it has a message to the seven churches in Asia. Then we have this glimpse of the throne of God that's asking who will bring about the day of the Lord. Then we have these seven signs, trumpets, and bowls, and we'll talk about those in a minute. We have the fall and the ultimate destruction of Babylon. You have God's final victory over evil. You have the new heavens and the new earth. And then you have a call for faithfulness. All right, so part one, the introduction tells us the writer and the original audience. This comes from Revelation 1. Uh, 4 and 5, John, he's the writer, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Right, so John the apostle is writing to the churches. And this is a very dark time for the churches. This is a time where Christians are being fed to the lions in gladiator pits. 
This is a time where if an official finds out that you are a Christ follower, they can have all of your stuff um, impounded. They can have you thrown in jail. They can have you executed on the spot because you're not bowing down to Caesar, who they considered a demigod at the time. This is a time where Christians are fearful for their lives. This is a time where we don't have the answers. This is the season to which God is writing the book of Revelation to. And he writes it to these uh, seven churches, and he ends each of his messages to the churches with a common refrain. Right? To some of them, he's saying, hey, I know it's been hard, and so he encourages them. To some of them, churches are starting to dip their toe into the world again, and they're trying to have it both ways. Oh, I'll follow Jesus privately, but publicly I'll follow Caesar. Oh, in my private life I'll do this, but in my public life I'll live this way. And so he offers challenge. But to both the churches who need encouragement and the churches that need to be challenged, he finishes with a similar refrain. And he says this. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who remains faithful, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. And never again will they leave it. He keeps calling his people to be faithful. Church after church after church, Jesus says, hold fast. Stand firm. Remain faithful. I know it's hard. I know it's dark. I know it seems like the world is falling apart. But he says to the early church, remain faithful because the day of the Lord is coming. And that's where we get into verses or chapters 4 and 5 where you have this awesome picture of the throne of God. And all the saints are there, and angels are singing praise. But then you get to chapter 5, and a weird scene happens. It goes from really happy to John weeping. It says, I wept and wept because there was no one who was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And the scroll is specifically talking about the day of the Lord. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be the kingdom and priests and to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. John writes and he says, Jesus is the one who will bring the day of the Lord. And what type of God do we have? Who is the Lion of Judah? The Lion of Judah is the one who's willing to die for his people, who's willing to have sin unleash everything on him, take it all for us so we can have a relationship with God. And he is the one who is worthy to bring apart this final day of the Lord, this final victory where one day, and we're going to see at the end of the book of Revelation, there's no more mourning, there's no more tears. And so he's telling his people, remain faithful have hope. Stand on Jesus. And Jesus opens up the scroll, and then we get the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And this is where typically Christians go wonky with Revelation. 
Because again, we try to make Revelation this code that we can decipher to figure out what God is doing, how God is going to act, how God is going to move. But again, Jesus said, no, no, no. It's going to come like a thief in the knife. That's not the purpose. And imagine if you are being fed to the lions, literally. If the government is coming and taking away all of your possessions, they're locking up your family and friends, you're worshiping in sewers and in hiding. You don't need a message of, oh, it's going to get worse. Right? That would not be the most comforting, uplifting scripture. Yeah, you think it's bad now. Just wait. Right? No, it's bad. It's pain. There's hurt. There's sickness. There's disease. There's death. And remember, apocalyptic imagery it uses metaphor to look behind the veil of what God is doing. And so when you look through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, what God is saying is, it's bad, and I know it's bad. And I know you think it might be tempted that I'm not working. But through each of the ends of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, it says, but for those who remain faithful, to those who remain firm, each one of these chapters ends with God saying, you will be victorious. You will not be left alone because the Lamb of God who was slain is going to win. And that's where we get into in verses 19, 20, and 21. All of a sudden, Babylon's overthrown. All the evil is thrown out. And we have this beautiful uh, verse in uh, chapter 21. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first earth and the first Heaven had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to them, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of eternal life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will will be my children. Revelation was written to a church that was in pain. A church that didn't know up from down, that was being persecuted, and that was asking the question, is God still here? Is God still faithful? And God writes the book of Revelation, and he says, I know it's hard. He goes, but the day of the Lord is coming where he will make everything new, where he will dry every tear, where there will be no more mourning or pain, where God will live among his people, and we eternally get to know him better, and we eternally get to know each other better. We get to see what real community looks like, what the earth was meant to look like. God is going to dwell among his people. There's no temple anymore. Notice that? Why is there no temple? Because God lives among his people. He does life with us. He lives inside of us. He walks with us. And he says, and that is where we are going. And so what is the message to the early church? It's a promise that he's not done. 
He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears says, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. He says, I'm not done. You see, Revelation is less sexy than we tend to make it. But it's so much more practical. Because when you get sick, because when someone dies, because when you lose your job, or you don't know the next way to go, there is a God who says, I am faithful. Stand on me. I am faithful, and the day of the Lord is coming. I am faithful, and I am working towards no more tears, no more mourning, joy, abundant life, community the way it was meant to be, the earth the way it was meant to be. And so the message to the early church is the same message to today's church. Remain faithful. When it gets hard, cling to him. Jesus says that whoever builds on him when the storms come, and he doesn't say if the storms come, right? None of us make it out without getting through a storm or two. But he says, when the storms come, I promise you will stand firm because our God proved how strong he is, how far he will go to have a relationship with us when he died. And because of that action, we can trust him when the other storms come. We can trust that the ultimate day where there are no more tears, there is no more mourning, where we get to see community to its fullest, where God dwells with his people. And so until that day, we stand firm. We do life together, both with him and with his church. And we bring that light in imperfect vessels, to be sure. But as his children, we bring that light and that promise and that hope to our community. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you humbled by how far you will go to have a relationship with us. Thankful that you are still working. That even when there's pain, even when there's violence, Lord, even when Satan wants us to fear each other, fear our neighbor, Lord God, you are working. Lord, that the day of the Lord, your presence, your active reign is coming. And so, Lord, we join the early church in saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But, Lord, we're also bold in our witness and we're bold in our love. For, Lord, you told your disciples that the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And so we pray for that boldness, even when times are dark. Lord, we say that it's all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.